There it is. Okay. <laughs> um, first thing I want to say is I want to thank everybody for their prayers for my wife and I. Um, we're on one of those journeys right now, and uh, we, uh, we covet your prayers each day. And I am so just overwhelmed with how prayer from other people, our brothers and sisters, really calms your heart and uh, just helps you. It gives you peace, and it gives you, it gives you that, that God peace that we need all the time in any type of trial or storm that we go through. Um, so thank you, and uh, we, we really appreciate it from our heart, my wife and I, and uh, we're going to get through this, uh, this uh, journey that we have. But for tonight, if you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2. <clears throat> now, you remember last time I was up here, we talked about quite a bit of stuff in Romans chapter 1 about our sin and how God could be a holy God and justify us. And um, one of the things that we need to remember is that we always have to hang on to Jesus. We have to know Jesus to be justified. And we have to place our, our faith and our hope in him. And, uh, and then he comes into our life. And we all know that. I'm assuming that everybody in the room is saved. But uh, that's one of the good things. The other thing that we talked about was there's a whole list of sin at the end in chapter 1, uh, verse 28 and 29, that Paul kind of listed out for us. And some of those things we may even remember doing ourselves. And he's going to mention that in chapter 2 here. So these, these things, um, in uh, verse 32 he says, Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So it's not only... If we do them, if we are with people that are doing it and we approve of that action, we can also be held responsible for that. Um, what comes to my mind real quick was Adam and Eve, the first sin. Uh, Eve, took the, Eve took the fruit. Adam was responsible, and he suffered as much as, as, as Eve did because they were responsible for what they did. And we have to remember that. <clears throat> he condoned what she did. Uh, where it says practice there, practice is something that you do over and over and over again. When we, when we were sinners, when we are sinners, before we were saved, we practiced sin. And we got really good at it. And now that we're saved, we have to practice walking in the Spirit. And that takes some time to get rid of those practices that we did in the past. If we sin now, we know that if we go in front of Jesus and we ask him to save us and to forgive us, he will. And he will forgive us of all our unrighteousness. But in the past, it was a lot easier to practice the sin thing. And that's why we have to be very careful. In fact, I was talking with a friend of mine this morning who has been through a lot of trials. And he told me that the flesh, and I never really looked at this before, but the flesh is a default. I mean, if you know anything about computers and you have certain defaults in your computer, our flesh is a default. It always reverts back to what we used to be. We have to be careful as Christians to go forward and to keep that out of our lives and to walk in the Spirit. So, in chapter 2, Paul sets a case against two groups, the self-righteous and the religious people. You could refer to these groups as the Jews and the Gentiles, or the moralists or the religious. Some, some scholars say that Paul referred to the moralists from verses 1 through 16, and the Jews from verses 17 to 29. The fact of the matter is, is Paul makes a case that fits us all. 
any one of us can fit in these categories, no matter what. There are many people like the man at the top, and I, and I read this from uh, J. Vernon McGee, tells a little story here. And he says, These are, uh, there are men, many people, like the man at the top of the hill, who looks down at the man at the bottom of the hill and says, something should be done for that poor fellow. We ought to start a mission down there. We should start giving him soup and clothes and shower and a shower. And then it says, I'm living on the top of the hill and I don't need anything. Well, we know that's not true. And he goes on to say, the struggle to meet the demands of God is just as high at the top of the hill as, it, as they are at the bottom of the hill. The only difference is that the man at the bottom of the hill will see his need much quicker than the man at the top of the hill. So we have to keep that in mind. If we're living a pretty good life and we are at the top of the hill, we have to remember those that are at the bottom of the hill and continue to pray for everyone no matter what. Everyone's equal as far as God is concerned. And it doesn't really matter how much money you have in the bank or what car you have in the driveway or what house you live in. It just doesn't matter. He looks at our heart. And trust me, I've learned a lot about the heart over the past couple of weeks. <laughs> so he, he looks at the heart. Uh, chapter 1 revealed the unrighteous man. Chapter 2 reveals the self-righteous man. So let's look at verse 1, and I'm going to do something different tonight. I'm going to give you seven different principles, and hopefully I'll get through them because we're going to have communion tonight. Seven different principles out of this chapter of God's, um, God's judgment. And God's judgment isn't in these seven principles, we really don't realize some of the things that he looks at. It's not talking about being saved. It's not talking about our salvation or anything like that. We've got salvation. We're clear. We're new. We still have to go in front of God for some of the things that we've done when we weren't saved. But the fact of the matter is, is he's going to judge us all. So let's look at verse 1. It says, therefore... You are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And that's true at, at certain point in time. Certainly the Jews would have applauded Paul for condemning for the condemnation of the Gentiles in chapter 1. The verses 18 through 32 tell, tell us he lists all these sins. In fact, the Jewish nation and the religious pride encouraged them to despise the Gentile dogs and have nothing to do with them. So Paul knows this, and Paul is trying to get away from that and come to the reality that everyone is, everyone is equal. And I think at this point in time, in this chapter, it almost sounds like he's more or less preaching to all the Jewish people rather than the Gentiles. Because he's got some nice things to say about the Gentiles. But for the most part, it's all bad. And uh, Paul used this judgmental attitude to prove the guilt of the Jews for the very things they condemned in the, in the Gentiles they themselves practiced. Um, <clears throat> they thought that they were free from judgment because they were God's chosen people. But Paul affirmed that God's election of the Jews made their responsibility and accountability even greater. Um, that saying that the more he gives us, the more we're responsible for, the more he allows us to do is true. But we are responsible for more. Um, many years I prayed just to come up here and stand behind here and do this. Now I know I've got to be even more accountable because I am doing this. And that's why we talked this morning with Pastor Dave. We get those butterflies in our stomach. 
And before you come up here, those butterflies are floral because you, you know what you're doing here is different. And everybody used to say, well, you know, you, you, uh, you ministered in the jail and everything else, but that's different. That is just totally different than standing up in front of my brothers and sisters and talking about the Bible. It's just different. So he goes on, and uh, Paul affirms that God's election of the Jews made them responsible, more responsible or more accountable. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 1 and 2, Judge not that you, be ju you not be judged, for with what judgment you use will be used against you, and with that measurement you will be judged. It will be measured back to you. So Jesus made it clear when he was here that we should not judge others' actions. Can we judge people? As Christians, we need to judge other Christians' activity. We judge righteously. If someone's doing something unrighteous, then we need to bring that to their attention. And we don't condemn them for it because that's not our job. We try to bring it to their attention so that they can go to God and ask for, ask for help and ask for forgiveness. Daniel Webster was a great statesman and an orator and loved the Bible. And he was asked in regards to as a, uh, what it was the greatest thought that, he ever, uh, that ever occupied his mind. And he said, the sense of my individual responsibility to God. Because either all of us have an individual responsibility to God. I can't, I, I can't blame my wife in front of God for something I did. It's, it's a responsibility I have personally to God. And, and that's the way we all are. God is personal. You must meet God as he is. Not as we might wish that he is. So many times you hear people say, well, we have to, if you say God is love, well, he's love. So we got to look at him as love. So really, we can do whatever we want because he's love. And he's going to love us no matter what. That's not the case. The case is the justification, but we have to meet him where he is. If you have Christ, you have already met God. If you don't have Christ, you still have to face him um, in, in his infinite holiness. And you have to face him. That, that, that facing him will unveil against you at the judgment day. We thank God for our Savior and his word that presents him in the gospel as the only means of attaining eternal life. So we owe everything we have to him, no matter what. It is all about Jesus all the time, and you hear us talk about that all the time, but that's the truth, and it has to be embored in our heads that it's all about him. The, uh, to reject the Son of God immediately brings upon a person the judgment of God, and the only verdict here is guilty. So the principles to his, uh, his punishments are, number one, God judges truth, verses 2, 3, and 4. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4 says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. God does not have one standard for the Jews and the other for the Gentiles, or any one of us. It's all equal. Whoever reads the list of sins in Romans 1, 29 through 32, can escape the fact that that each person is guilty of at least one of them. In condemning the Gentiles for their sins, 
the Jews were really condemning them themselves. When you point your finger at someone else, what happens? Three of them are pointing right towards you. Our sins always look worse on somebody else than they do on us. Okay? Uh, that wasn't that bad. You know, I, I stole a candy bar. That wasn't that bad. Okay? There's people that steal candy bars every day. Oh, that's bad. That's terrible. We look on TV and we see these people going into jewelry stores and, 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 and stealing jewelry. That, that's stealing. That's stealing just like stealing a candy bar is. So it's all equal. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, he said, Therefore, having these prom promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So we have to be careful about that. The second principle here is God judges according to accumulated guilt. And this one kind of set me back a little bit. Okay, verse 5, it says, But in accordance with, his, with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The cumulative character of continuing impenitence, which means no regret for your sins, this shows that the hardened and ungrateful sinner lays up during the, the, pro, per, um, the purposes of their earthly life constant treasure of wrath which will be revealed at the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, where all the evil works of the lost will be shown in all their ramifications. So the great white throne judgment is going to expose all of this to them, no matter what, those that don't believe. But if we flee to Calvary, you will not come into judgment. And we know that. If we take the Lord as our Savior, we know that we won't come into that kind of judgment. John 5, 24 says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So that's what we need to That's what we need to include in ourselves, in our heart, that no matter what, Jesus has got us saved, no matter what. Number three, according to the works. Now, everybody says that, you know, our works don't mean anything. Uh, you know, if we have faith, we have works and all that type of thing. But this is applying to the non-believer and not the believer, not the person who has their salvation included in their life. Verse 6 says, who will render to each one according to his deeds? Um, eternal life to those who be patient, continuous in doing good, seek for a glory, honor, and immorality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and, and uh, damnation will come to them. On every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So no matter whether we're saved or we're not saved, these words apply. If we're saved, it's a lot easier to understand this than when we're not saved. And that's, that's an obvious thing because we have the Holy Spirit to explain this all to us. Um, if, 
we try our best to have what Pastor Dave said this morning, the correct attitude and the cooperation with God and the Holy Spirit to be able to carry us through and to not let things bother us so much as what they used to bother us. Uh, that, that's one of my quirks that I need to set back and I need to take time, like Pastor Dave said, and let things pass first before we get disrupted about it because it, it's all going to work out no matter what. God is in it and God is in us. It's all going to work out no matter what. In these verses, Paul was not teaching about salvation by good deeds. He was explaining another basic principle of God's judgment. God judges according to deeds, just as he judges according to truth. Paul was dealing with the consistent actions of the person's life. And this makes a lot of sense. The total impact of his character and conduct. So we have to take a full picture of it. We have to take a whole picture of what we, used, what we see there. Uh, we, used, we used to talk when, uh, when I was an interviewer uh, during a time as a police officer. You sit and you talk with somebody, and there are certain physiological response, responses to certain things that you watch. That's what we have to see in somebody's life as Christians. And what happens is, uh, there's a couple of good examples here. David committed some terrible sins, but the total emphasis of his life was obedience to God. So if we read about David, we hear David and all his idiosyncrasies and all his sins and all that type of thing. We think to ourselves, well, I mean, I'm not going to follow what he does, but his overall character was obedience to God, no matter what he did. He always came back to God as opposed to Judas, who acknowledged his sin and supplied the money for buying a cemetery for strangers, yet the total emphasis of his life was disobedience. Judas was disobedient, no matter what. He wasn't spiritually walking with the group. He was walking with the group to satisfy himself and nothing else. Number four says, without respect of persons, verses 11 and 12. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law, and many as have sinned in the law, will be judged by the law. Paul's statement in verse 11 would have shocked the Jews. For he considered himself deserving of special treatment because he was chosen by God. But Paul explained that the Jewish law only made the guilty of Israel that much greater. It's a false illusion that because God didn't give the law to the Gentiles, they would not be judged by the law. That's false. Actually, the Gentiles had the work of the law written in their hearts. And that's in Romans 2, verse 15, and we'll get to that in a minute. But to get back to where he said about there's no partiality in verse 11, if we look at chapters 3 and 4 in the book of John, Jesus goes from the woman at the well to make her better after he took on Nicodemus, who was a high-ranking priest and a rich man. So there is no difference. Jesus treated them the same way, and there is no partiality with God. And that's a fairly good example, I think, because he, he, he was respectful to Nicodemus when Nicodemus came to see him, but he told him the truth. And he said, you must be born again. And of course, he didn't, he didn't get it in the beginning, but still... Jesus moved on, and in chapter 4, he takes on the woman at the well, tells her her whole life, and she believed him. So he's not partial to anybody. Number five, according to performance or obedience, not knowledge. Verses 13, 14, and 15. According to performance or obedience, 
and not knowledge. Verse 13 says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Verse 14 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law in themselves. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. One of the things that I referred to in this particular area was that guy or gal they always talk about on that island that doesn't have a Bible. Okay, they have... They have moral attitudes built right in. God built that right into us. And if they, if they do the right thing, they're going to be, um, they're not going to be accusing themselves, but excusing them, okay? So even though they don't have those laws written up, they're still going to inside follow that moral compass, Wherever you go, you find people with an inner sense of right and wrong. So we know what's right and wrong. And this inner judge, the Bible calls conscious, our conscience. You also find among all cultures a sense of sin, a fear of judgment, and an attempt to atone for sins and appear and appease whatever God's are feared. The Jews boasted in the law. They were different from their pagan neighbors who worshipped idols. But Paul made it clear that it was not possession of the law that counted, but the practice of the law. Now we know, as everybody else knows, that he didn't make, everybody else that's saved knows or reads the Bible knows that he didn't make the law for us to follow it. We can't follow the law. We just can't do it. And there's, there's ten commandments, and there's at least one that, that we can't get over. One or two. Probably most of them. We just can't follow it without Christ. And that's why Christ came to fulfill all that for us. The Jews looked on the Gentiles as blind, in the dark, foolish, immature, and ignorant. But if God found the depraved Gentiles guilty, how much more guilty were the privileged Jews going to be? God not only judges according to truth and according to his men's deeds, but he also judges the secrets of of men. He sees what's in our heart. Number six, according to the heart's secret, verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel, Paul tells us. The sixth principle of God's judgment here is that it comprehends the very secrets of man. Within every human heart, in hours of consciousness, there is going to be constant dialogue. We have constant dialogue with ourselves, and I think I mentioned it in the beginning. Our default is our flesh. We constantly have that little angel and that little devil on our shoulders, and there's a constant battle going on, and we have that dialogue with ourselves. As we read in verse 15, the Jews the Jewish people had the religion of outward action, not inward attitude. And I'm going to revert again back to what Pastor Dave said this morning about attitude, okay? They may have been moral on the outside, but what about the heart? And we all know that God looks at the heart. God seeks the heart. He doesn't care what we look like, what we do for a living, how we dress, he doesn't care about any of that stuff. He cares about our heart and what's in our heart. 
Our Lord's indictment of the Pharisees in Matthew 23 illustrates the principle perfectly. God not only seeks the deeds, sees the deeds, but he also sees the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. In the Sermon of the Mount, we are told that sins can be committed in the heart. In fact, Jesus gives us some examples. In Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22, he says, You have heard it, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. And he says, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother and without cause shall be in the danger of the judgment. Matthew five twenty-seven and 28 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman in lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we can think up those things. We can covet those things and we can think those things in our heart. That's why he follows our heart. Paul writes in Romans 7, 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would have not known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. When Paul was a terrorist, Pharisee type of person, he thought he had it made. That was one of his desires and his pride to go after Christians because he thought he had it all together. He knew the law. He thought he was following the law until he really discovered you shall not covet. Then he realized he was sinning in his heart. He wasn't necessarily sinning outside, but he was sinning in his heart. And that's what God looks at. That's the most important part. Number seven and the last one, according to reality, not religious profession. So we, it's not a profession, it's a reality. God looks at the reality. He doesn't look at how many times we go to church. He doesn't look at how many times we talk about religion. And we all know that religion is the way that man wants to get close to God. That's why there's so many different factions of religion in the Christian life. Every time somebody gets a new idea or somebody is, uh, disagrees with somebody, they go out and they uh, start a new church. Okay? And that, that wasn't what he's intended. Our church was built by the Jews and the Jewish men and women. And it started that way, but it grew into all different types of factions and denominations and all that, and he never intended that. So it's not about the religion. It's about the heart, and it's about the reality of the heart. In verse 17 through 24, it says, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the, to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob the temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, 
as it is written. So now he's, he's, he's kind of pointing towards, pointing his, his, his weapon towards the Jewish people. And he's telling them, look, we were supposed to be an example. <laughs> and we blew it. We were supposed to be the example for the world, and we blew it. Because we blew it, now he's making the Gentiles the example. And that's what he's really telling them here. Instead of glorifying God among the Gentiles, the Jews were dishonoring God, and Paul quoted Isaiah 52.5 to prove his point. And it says, Now therefore, what have I heard, says the Lord? that my people are taking, taken away for nothing. Those who rule over them, make them wail, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed continually every day. So they weren't a real good example, and they weren't a real good example for themselves either. The pagan Gentiles had daily contact with the Jews in the business Uh, in the business district and other activities. And they were not fooled by the Jews' devotion to the law. The very law that the Jews claimed to obey only indicted them, making it all about them, developing strict rules in the Talmud and the Mishnah. I think the Talmud has something like... uh, no work on the Sabbath, and Sabbath, and I heard that uh, I heard one preacher say that it was thirty-six different rules that they couldn't do on the Sabbath because they couldn't work. I mean, really goofy things like you couldn't put your slippers on because that was work. You couldn't walk on the sidewalk and step on a crack, or you'll break your mother's back, or something like that. And, and it, was just, it's, it was just bizarre. They were adding all these things to, to religion, and uh, they didn't need to. I mean, I was just elated, and I think I said this before, but I was elated when I first come here and I just got saved, and I learned that during Lent, I didn't have to eat fish on Friday. I hate fish. <laughs> Now, now we go out for big hamburgs on Friday during Lent. So anything that we add to Jesus is going to just be a, a disaster. and We can't do that. How they prayed, <clears throat> using the temple area business for dealings, sale, and trade like a business district, and how they prayed and showed pain of their uh, fasting, on the street corners, only during the days when the markets were open. Now, I, I, don't know how, I don't know how true this is, but I heard they used to go mostly out on Thursday mornings because Thursday was the day that the marketplace was open. And they used to park themselves on the corner and they used to look like they were, you know, they were really fast and hard and they were praying and people used to go by and say, wow, wish I could be that holy, you know. And that's what they were doing. That's not what God wanted. An example out of Matthew 23 says, Matthew 23, 25 through 28 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup or dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, and I think we've heard that before from Paul, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Even, even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So that's obviously something that we have to avoid. Um, I, I, and I get convicted all the time on this. Uh, my wife makes sure that she reminds me, are you acting like you would act at church? Okay? <laughs> and I have to confess, there are times when I don't. But I have to to get that under control. 
Attitude. It's your attitude. And that's what counts. And the heart. All of it counts in the heart. Finally, circumcision. Verses 25 through 29. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become come uncircumcised. Therefore, if the uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his circumcision be count as circumcision? Uncircumcision count as circumcision. And will not the physical circumcision, uncircumcision, if he fulfills the law, judge you, not, judge you who even with your right code and circumcision are of transgression of the law. So actually, obviously Paul is saying here, look it, you don't have to have a physical circum, uh, circumcision to follow the law. If you follow the law and you're uncircumcised, then that automatically becomes a circumcision. And he goes on and he says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. That's why God told us when he wants us to pray, he wants us to go to our room and pray to him alone. Not like the Pharisees did on the corner of the market so everybody could see them. We don't, get, we don't get anything from the praise of men, but we do from the praise of God. This is the great mark. This circumcision is the great mark of the covenant, and it, had, it started with Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. The Jews, the Gentiles, were uncircumcised to the Jews, the, the Gentiles were uncircumcised dogs. Here we go again with the dogs. The tragedy is that the Jews depended on this physical mark instead of the spiritual reality it represented. Deuteronomy 10.16 says, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Again, he looks at the heart. The heart is the most important thing. <coughs> Excuse me. A true Jew is one who has an inward spiritual experience in the heart. People today make the same mistake with respect to baptism of the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Supper or even church membership. Okay? How many churches, when you go to, you have to be a member? And if you notice here, you don't have to sign anything. You don't, have to, you don't have to include any type of application. You can come here no matter what. Because if you're really and actually honestly saved, you are part of the church, the whole church. And God wants us to be that way. Uh, and an obedient Gentile would be more acceptable than the disobedient Jew with the circumcision. In fact, a disobedient Jew turns his circumcision into uncircumcision in God's sight. For God looks at the heart. The Jews praise each of their uh, each for their obedience to the law, but the important thing is the praise of God, and again, not the praise of man. So much for the Jew who was a religious man. When Paul wrote Romans, but what about the religious man today who professes to be a Christian and churchgoer or a member, as they call it? What about that person? Okay, because we know that there are people out there that purport to be Christians that just don't, they don't follow that pattern. Okay. Would they fit into the question posed in verses 21 and 22, which says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? 
You who preach that the man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? So do we practice what we preach? And is there people that don't do that? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we can watch TV and see that. Okay? Do you know some teachers that teach others but refuse to follow their teachings? Are there, are there pastors like that? Are there people that practice what they preach? Or are there people that don't practice what they preach? Sure, certainly there are. In a person... Um, in a person that's a Christian who is one outwardly, but he or she is a Christian who is one inwardly, is that person producing fruit or just a church membership? Do they produce fruit? Are we supposed to inspect that fruit? Of course, we're, we're fruit inspectors. Uh, I had a friend of mine with this organization that I belonged to, and he just wasn't producing fruit. He was producing anger, anger shame, uh, disobedience, and the organization asked him to leave because of that. And the organization was chastised because we inspected his fruit. We inspected his salvation. Now, if he had salvation, that was fine, but it should show itself in some type of fruit sooner or later. And it just wasn't. It wasn't. So we were chastised by that, but it worked out okay. God's great announcement of these principles of his throne is given to awakened men out of their false hopes about themselves, to the truth about themselves, and to be regarded as a, a description of God's judgment as it must be in order for people to be aroused and not refuse his truth. He's given us these things to be able to understand and know what's going to happen if we don't adhere to them. I mean, that's kind of elementary to all of us. Here's the book. Here's what he says. Follow what he says and does and obey. And in the meantime, how does this work with everybody that don't know Christ? And I like what Charles Stanley used to say. How does this work for people that don't believe? It don't. It just don't. First, you have to believe. You have to have Christ in you. And that's what happens. But don't confuse Romans with the Revelation 20. At the judgment day, there will be no such preaching and reasoning with people as Paul is doing here. But damnation only. According to their works, the things written in the books. God keeps good books. If God's rebukes are still coming to you, if God's rebukes are still coming to you, there's a sweet hope for you. So if he's still rebuking you and he's still chasing you down, there's a sweet hope that you have to turn to and you have to open the door for and allow him in. Those that have accepted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior will be judged for those things. They did not advance the kingdom of. And again, I heard, I heard a preacher explain this, that when, as, as believers, we stand in front of Christ at, at Jesus' judgment seat, and all that we've done that's wood, hay, and stubble, that doesn't, advanced the kingdom will be burnt up in front of us and then he will show us the good things that we've done and the things that he've allowed us to do that are good and that that either push him or push his kingdom and then he'll say well done good and faithful servant and that's that's really something to look forward to because I don't want to see all those other things. I don't care about those other things anymore. Paul says we need to, we need to forget about the past, and we need to forget about that and go forward. Because once we were saved, once we accepted Jesus, we go forward from that, and nothing can ever hurt us after that, no matter what. 2 Corinthians says, 
I'm sorry, this is known as the, the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ for us. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we're going to see that. We're going to know that. Um, that's going to be glorious for all of us. Because after we got saved, if we take our attitudes and try to extend the kingdom of God and try to let everybody know about the kingdom of God, then we're doing what he asked us to do. And we reverts back to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. If we advance the kingdom of God, then we're doing what he told us to do and we're being obedient. For unbelievers of Christ, the white throne judgment is explained in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was open, which is, the book of, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which they were written in the book. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered them, delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged according to one, uh, each, uh, each one according to his works. Again, it's personal. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is where I do not want to stand, and I'm sure you don't either. I don't want to hear those words. There is no rebukes in that great day, but visitation only. So we're not going to be able to say a thing when we're judged, all of us. We won't be able to stand in front of him and wag our finger at him and say, you know, I thought this was happening this way and that way. That's not going to happen. We've got enough proof in our Bible, and we've got enough proof around us for what everything happens. And we need to take advantage of that now, no matter what. And <clears throat> which brings me to, we're going to go for communion. Sarah Sarah's can come up and uh, she's going to do a song for us. And then while she's doing the song, everybody can come up and get their elements. And then we'll take it together once you return. And I'm, I'm confident that Sarah's already got a song for us prepared. <laughs> You know, I was thinking today, <clears throat> and I knew we were having communion tonight, and I was thinking today to myself, um, how can I place myself where Jesus was doing this? And in my mind, I thought myself sitting at that table that night while he was speaking, and that would just been phenomenal. And I, I really think that he wants us to remember that and remember it that way. Um, not in a, in a busy way but in, and not in a quick way, but he really wants us to concentrate on what he was telling his disciples. That, you know, he's going to give his body up. And even though they didn't understand, I mean, they followed, they obeyed, but the fact of the matter is, is, is that was what he was doing. And we understand that now. And we should really think about that when we do this. Because that's what he wanted us to do. He wanted us to remember him with this. So as we take these elements, 
try to close your eyes and envision yourself at that table and him talking and breaking the bread and telling us that he's going to give his life for us. He's going to give it up for us. And he's going to take our sins away. And that's what the most important thing is for us to remember. So let's take the body. Then they took the wine and they passed it around the table. And, and I, could, I could just imagine sitting there and watching all of this and seeing their faces a little confused and a little disrupted, thinking that, you know, a couple of them maybe be thinking, wow, this is, this is it. This is what's going to happen. Rome's going to be overtaken right after we drink our wine and we're going to go out there and we're going to take over the world. Well... Jesus said he was going to take, we were going to take over the world, but not that way, by following him and doing his great commission. So he took the wine, and he told them that this is my blood. This is what's going to give, get rid of all your sins. And then he said, do this all in remembrance of me, because I want you to remember what goes on. And sometimes I think we get so busy in our life and so busy in our Christian life that we really forget that or we put it aside. And that should never be put aside because that's the most important part. So he said, let's take the wine. Let's drink. And I got something here, and I know I have time here, but I want to read this to read this. And it's about Jesus. Some of you may have heard this before, but I always keep this close to my heart. And it says, for me to live is Christ. Is it possible to sum up an entire existence with one word? Jesus. He's the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The same yesterday, today, and tomorrow the one who was and is and is to come. Jesus, who is he to me? He is the prince of peace who calms my soul. He is the good shepherd who guards my soul. He is the great high priest who redeems my soul. He is the king of kings who governs my soul. He is the great prophet who illuminates my soul. He is the beloved who loves my soul. He is the judge of the living and the dead who vindicates my soul. He is the resurrection and the life who preserves my soul. He is the great I am who assures my soul. Jesus King of glory, King of the ages, King of all the earth, King of kings. My King. Jesus enough, more than enough. When I'm hungry, he is the bread of life that feeds me. When I'm lost, he is the way that leads me home. When I'm trapped, he's the door to freedom. When I'm uncertain, he's the rock. When I'm speechless, he is the word. When I'm in despair, he's the bright and morning star. When I'm soiled, he is the lamb of God who washes away my sins. When I'm afraid, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. When I'm impoverished, he is the unspeakable gift. When I'm in the dark, he is the light. He is the Lord of glory, Lord of hosts, Lord of all. My Lord. To him alone belongs the name above all names.
Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us, and we thank you for all the words that you give us in your word. The direction, the knowledge, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) and everything that's incorporated with it, Lord. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for your love. Your love reaches far beyond anything that we can ever imagine. We thank you for that, Lord, that we can have the love that we really never and truly find in this life, but we know that you will give it to us always, no matter what, in a continuing way in your kingdom here and in your kingdom in heaven. We thank you for your love, Lord. We thank you for all that you've given us and done for us. And we just love you, Lord. We thank you, and I I pray, Lord, that my brothers and sisters here make it home safely and that you bless them and their families and give us all peace, Lord, your peace. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.